picture the fire department responding to a large house fire. They come with their trucks and begin to spray large volumes of water through powerful hoses. They always do their best to contain the fire without wetting or damaging the rest of the house, but sometimes there is just too much burning, and in the course of dousing the flames, the rest of the house becomes water damaged. Our bodies treat infections much in the same manner. They work to douse the flames caused by a pathogen without compromising the rest of the house or organs in the process. In sepsis, however, our body responds with so much water that it causes damage beyond that of the initial fire, and in the process of dousing the flames, the integrity of the rest of the house is compromised. Today, our patient has sepsis, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Dousing the Flames and is all about sepsis. All right, let's start with our minute physiology. Sepsis is defined as life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. Our body is capable of activating a powerful immune response that requires a careful balance of pro- and anti-inflammatory mediators to contain an infection. When exposed to a pathogen, our body employs several immune mechanisms to control and eradicate it. Macrophages bind to the pathogen and activate a downstream inflammatory cascade that involves toll-like receptors, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and polymorphonuclear leukocytes. Of particular importance, this exposure activates mast cells, phagocytes, and the local endothelium, all of which in turn release cytokines. These cytokines attract highly motile neutrophils, which come rushing to the site of infection. Neutrophils attack these pathogens through phagocytosis, or ingestion, degranulation, or the release of granules, and with the development of neutrophil extracellular traps, or NETs, which are webs of nucleic acids and histones that entrap the offending pathogen. In order to keep this process in check, various anti-inflammatory cytokines work to keep the inflammation under control and ultimately allow elimination of the infection with subsequent healing. While we do not yet have a complete understanding of the pathophysiology of sepsis, emerging evidence suggests that these NETs play an important role in the switch from infection to full-blown sepsis. The release of histones from nets themselves can lead to activation of toll-like receptors, thrombin generation, and platelet microaggregation and thrombocytopenia. Furthermore, evidence has suggested that these histones are directly toxic to vascular endothelium, leading to the coagulopathy and multi-system damage observed in sepsis. In essence, the pro-inflammatory response in sepsis becomes so intense that it overcomes the ability of the anti-inflammatory mediators to control it. As a result, inflammation becomes dysregulated, leading to multi-organ compromise and damage. Our role as clinicians is to recognize this dysregulated response and act to treat the inciting infection and support the affected organs in order to allow the body to restore its natural pro- and anti-inflammatory balance. So now let's begin with our approach to sepsis. Like most medical conditions, the ideal management of sepsis lies in its prevention. In your admitted patients, be aware of early signs of infection and intervene as soon as possible to prevent progression to conditions as severe as sepsis. Unfortunately, though, prevention is not always possible. 
Therefore, the next most important piece in the management of sepsis is its early identification. As always, your assessment begins by examining your patient's clinical status. This includes examining the vitals to look for tachycardia, fever or hypothermia, hypotension, tachypnea, and altered mental status. If at any point you are concerned about the stability of your patient, or if you suspect they may be septic and your senior is not aware, make sure you promptly inform someone who can come and provide you with assistance, and arrange to transfer them to a monitored setting such as a step-down or a critical care bed if it is safe to do so. Conveniently, the same variables you use to assess stability are the same ones that can be applied to assess for the possibility of sepsis. Several scoring systems exist for the purpose of screening for and identifying patients with sepsis, but really the key is to have a high index of suspicion. A quick foot of the bed assessment can be enough to raise your suspicion. The first sign of sepsis is often tachypnea, as the body tries to meet the metabolic demand occurring. As sepsis progresses, patients can become confused or encephalopathic and tachycardic. When you palpate their extremities, you will often find that unlike cardiogenic or hypovolemic shock, they are warm, as a result of the peripheral vasodilation we mentioned before. Keep in mind that while the presence of warm extremities can help support your diagnosis of sepsis, the absence certainly does not rule it out. In cases of profound hypotension or septic cardiomyopathy, you could observe cold extremities despite sepsis being the primary driving etiology. You may already be aware of a scoring system called the SIRS, or Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome criteria. This includes a temperature greater than 38 degrees Celsius or less than 36 degrees Celsius, heart rate greater than 90, respiratory rate greater than 20, or PaCO2 less than 32 millimeters of mercury and white blood cell count greater than 12, or less than 4, or more than 10% bands. Having any two of these criteria equates to a positive score, and should trigger you to consider the possibility of sepsis. Keep in mind, however, that the major drawback of this scoring system is its lack of specificity, and therefore there are many non-infectious mimics, for example, severe pancreatitis, that would score positive on the SERS criteria. The third international consensus definitions for sepsis and septic shock presented the QSOFA score, or Quick Sequential Organ Failure Assessment, as a means of stratifying mortality risk for patients with sepsis. In this framework, points are given for altered mental status, respiratory rate greater than 22 per minute, and a systolic blood pressure of less than 100 millimeters of mercury. If two or more criteria are positive, this correlates to increased risk of sepsis-related mortality. Keep in mind that this score is for risk stratification, not diagnosis, and therefore is not highly sensitive for sepsis. Unfortunately, neither tool is perfect at identifying sepsis, and research is still being done in search of the ideal way to identify and diagnose sepsis. We present both scores here as a supportive tool for you to detect and prognosticate patients with sepsis. However, neither surpasses good clinical judgment. If you have identified a patient as likely having sepsis and other diagnoses are less likely, ensure that appropriate peripheral intravenous access is established and send blood cultures immediately. Try to efficiently identify the most likely source of infection and causative organism and use this to guide the initiation of empiric antibiotic therapy. You are trying to obtain enough information to make an informed decision about which antibiotics to give but ideally administer the first dose within the first hour of sepsis being identified. 
In an age of increasing antibiotic resistance, the patient's own antibiotic resistance history and local susceptibility patterns are important to consider. Once these measures are initiated, use your history to identify the possible host and pathogenic factors that may have led to your patient having sepsis. Your questions should work to confirm the presumed infectious source and to ensure that it is not in fact an inflammatory mimic at work. Work head-to-toe and ask about things like headache, neck stiffness, and photophobia that would suggest meningitis, cough or dyspnea that may represent pneumonia, abdominal pain indicative of ascending cholangitis, diverticulitis, or bowel perforation, diarrhea and recent antibiotic use that raises suspicion for C. difficile, dysuria, frequency, or flank pain that may indicate urinary tract infection or pyelonephritis. Also think critically about what characteristics of this patient led them to become septic. Are they on medications such as glucocorticoids that have rendered them immunosuppressed? Do they have indwelling lines or catheters? Do they have a common bile duct stone that caused biliary obstruction, or previous abdominal surgery that led to bowel obstruction and subsequent perforation? What about previous splenectomy that could put them at risk for infection by encapsulated bacteria? Have they been receiving chemotherapy for malignancy? Ask about travel history, any sick contacts, and consider the time of year. Is it flu season? Ask yourself, why this patient and why now? On history, ensure you ask about recent hospitalizations and previous antibiotic use, in addition to things that may raise your suspicion for resistant, atypical, or even fungal infections. Past medical and social history is important here too. Does the patient have a history of IV drug use that would put them at risk for infective endocarditis or MRSA? Do they have a history of HIV that should lead you to suspect immunodeficiency? Are they incarcerated and at risk for infections like tuberculosis? Have they had recent abdominal surgery or been on TPN? These features may merit consideration of more advanced antibiotic therapies or even antifungal coverage. Just like history, your physical examination should be used to identify the possible source of infection. As before, carefully assess their vitals and mental status and ensure they are not in any respiratory distress that would require immediate intervention. Use your history to guide you, but again, examine head to toe. If you suspect meningitis, check jolt accentuation and Kernig's and Brzezinski's signs. Listen carefully to the lungs for any asymmetry in breath sounds, crackles, or wheezes. Perform a careful and thorough examination of the abdomen for any pain and ensure there is no evidence of peritonitis that would merit assessment by a surgical team. Examine the skin for any rashes, evidence of cellulitis, or any pressure ulcers that could represent portals of infection. With your history and physical exam complete, you are now ready to proceed to the workup. The workup for sepsis is centered around identification of the source of infection and isolation of the pathogenic organism, in addition to assessment for sequelae of sepsis and monitoring for organ failure. Initial blood work should include a CBC to assess for leukocytosis, in addition to thrombocytopenia that could indicate DIC as a consequence of severe sepsis. Send a serum lactate and VBG to assess for metabolic acidosis and to risk stratify your patient and guide your resuscitation. Creatinine and liver enzymes should be sent to assess for renal and hepatic dysfunction. You will likely see an elevation in creatinine consistent with acute kidney injury and in severe cases can have elevated bilirubin and liver enzymes supportive of shock liver. Where possible, have a urinary catheter inserted to allow for accurate monitoring of urinary output to help you monitor renal function and guide your resuscitation.
where a detailed history is possible, use this to guide your infectious workup. Regardless of suspected source, however, always obtain two sets of peripheral blood cultures to identify a causative organism, ideally before administration of any antibiotics. While the goal is to obtain cultures before administering antimicrobials, this should not delay treatment if it is challenging. If they have any indwelling vascular lines such as PIC lines, central lines, or dialysis catheters, ensure a set of cultures is obtained from there as well. Further infectious workup may include lumbar puncture for meningitis, sputum culture, and chest x-ray for pneumonia, urinalysis and urine culture for urinary tract infection or pyelonephritis, and abdominal x-ray or CT where you suspect an intra-abdominal pathology. Identification of the infectious source is critical, as source control is key in the management of a patient with sepsis. Now onwards to treatment. The mainstay of treatment for sepsis lies in early administration of appropriate antibiotics. Did you know that for every hour antibiotics are delayed, mortality from sepsis increases by 8%? Your history and suspected infectious source should guide your antibiotic choice. For example, pneumonia should be covered by agents that target common respiratory pathogens, whereas an intra-abdominal process would require gram-negative in addition to anaerobic coverage. If your patient is at risk for fungal infection, then antifungals may be required as well. Given the significant mortality associated with inadequate antibiotic coverage, it is best to start with empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics and then narrow once the causative organism has been identified. Where available, look into any previous microbiology history on your patient. Find out if they have previously grown any resistant organisms that would require medications like vancomycin or carbapenems. The next critical pillar in the management of sepsis is fluid administration. The overwhelming inflammatory response that occurs in sepsis leads to third spacing of fluid and therefore intravascular volume depletion. Your goal with fluid administration is to improve the patient's organ perfusion. This will be reflected with improved blood pressure or cardiac output and a lactate that improves as perfusion is restored. As per the surviving sepsis 2016 guidelines, Fluid resuscitation should begin with the administration of 30 milliliters per kilogram of crystalloid fluid within the first three hours. In most average size patients, this works out to about 2 to 3 liters of fluid. As always, you should be frequently reassessing your patient's volume status, especially in those with conditions like congestive heart failure that put them at higher risk for pulmonary edema. Once this initial volume resuscitation is complete, your job is to decide whether your patient would benefit from further fluid administration. In the case of ongoing hypotension, this becomes a critical decision point. Here, it is important to assess whether further fluids will help improve their cardiac output and therefore improve the tissue perfusion, or if you need to escalate to therapy with vasoactive agents to maintain adequate perfusing pressure. This is where using passive leg rays, ultrasound to assess IVC diameter and compressibility, echocardiography, or fluid administration trials may help guide your decision making. As you continue to administer fluid, be frequently reassessing to ensure it is actually achieving your goal. Is their blood pressure improving as you give fluids, or is it only transiently responsive or persistently low? Is their lactate trending down or up? Is their urine output improving? If their blood pressure is no longer fluid responsive, or the patient has received several liters of fluid with no response in blood pressure or lactate, then it is likely time to reach for norepinephrine to help maintain a mean arterial pressure of 65 millimeters of mercury. Keep in mind that if the majority of these clinical parameters are improving, however the lactate is unchanged, 
you should consider other causes of elevated lactate, such as liver dysfunction, bowel perforation, or whether any vasoactive agents, such as epinephrine, could be contributing. As we have mentioned previously, once you have moved beyond the initial resuscitation phase, source control becomes important to ensure control of the actual inciting trigger to all of this. Involve other services early on if necessary to ensure this is accomplished. One last piece to remember is to always ensure you are adequately documenting that this patient has a diagnosis of sepsis. This not only helps the rest of the care team stay up to date and clear on the patient's diagnosis, but assists with statistics tracking of the incidence of sepsis on a national level. Alright, for today's Medicine Minute, we are going to highlight one more emerging tool in mortality risk stratification, known as the Early Warning Score. The Early Warning Score, much like SIRS or QSOFA, utilizes several variables including level of consciousness, heart rate, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, temperature, and blood pressure, all of which are graded based on severity and assigned points accordingly. This score is then summed and applied to inform the clinician of that patient's risk of mortality or likelihood of ICU admission for those on the ward. A 2017 study by Chirpak Eyal compared SIRS, QSOFA, and various early warning scores and found that early warning scores had the greatest accuracy with respect to risk stratification for patients with suspected infection. Many hospitals have adopted some variation of the early warning score, and research is still growing on its efficacy. Next time you're on the wards, check to see if your hospital has a similar system, and pay attention when your patients have elevated scores. Alright, before we go, we want to leave you with some key takeaway points. Number one, sepsis is a life-threatening condition, and survival is dependent upon early recognition and initiation of appropriate antibiotic therapy. Two, despite advances in medical therapy, the mortality for sepsis still remains astoundingly high and is the most costly acute care disease in North America. In patients who require ICU admission, the mortality is as high as 20-30%, to 30%, and the cost to the U.S. healthcare system was $24 billion in 2013. 3. Administer fluids initially to compensate for the fluid shifts that occur, but always be critically assessing whether escalation with norepinephrine or other vasoactive agents is more appropriate. And 4. Don't forget source control. Consult early where assistance from other care providers is needed to achieve this. Alright, that's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Dosing the Flames. This episode was written by Dr. Leah Karianopoulos, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Allison Fox Robichaud, intensivist and president of the Canadian Sepsis Foundation, and Dr. Walid Al-Hazani, intensivist and gastroenterologist and methodology chair of Surviving Sepsis Campaign, and Dr. Rebecca Kruselbrink, internist and intensivist. This episode was produced and recorded by Leah Karianopoulos. The Internet Works series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt-Vegas. Music production by Lakshman Vasanthamoan. If you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, and leave a rating at wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. <laughs>